30 years ago, Joanna, Doug, and I met at the University of Virginia's Darden Business School. Now, after years of experiences, we are visiting with our classmates to ask, if you could have a beer with your younger self right after graduating with your MBA, what were the key decision points in your career path? What advice would you provide? And what are the stories behind the lessons? After 20 years in private equity investing, Mark Reiser still knows Hustle Beat Smarts. Join us in exploring his journey from driving nuclear subs to breaking into private equity. Mark shares his key takeaways for determining investments and discusses decisions he's made to manage work-life balance. Welcome, Mark Reiser. Well, uh, you know, well, um, Mark, you are our uh, fifth podcast. You're actually our second data. You know, as 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 you alluded to earlier, we um, we interviewed each other for the first three you know, podcast. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm glad to see you got a little adult beverage there. That's good. This is going to be lively. It's going to be lively. Uh, but no, it's, you know, the whole, the, the, this is evolving. Like the, the podcast, yeah. you know, will, will evolve over time, but the gist of it remains that we want to interview, um, you know, people that we know from Darden and mm -hmm. with, with the idea being, if we could go back in time and have a beer with our former self, you know, 25 years ago, you know, what are some of the, you know, interesting things that we've learned through our business careers and our lives and, um, you know, and, and how, you know, uh, what would, what would we tell our former self or a younger person that might be just beginning their business career? And, um, so, uh, so this will be, this will be, we can take it in a lot, you know, we can take it in any direction you want. So don't feel, uh, you know, don't feel compelled to answer our questions. You can talk about a lot of different things. But the first thing I wanted to jump in on just to kind of kick things off um, before we get into your career was, um, you know, you and I had something in common at Darden, which was not, you know, which was certainly not the norm in that, you know, we were from the deep South. We were not from the mid Atlantic or new England or the West coast or, you know, international. And, um, and, you know, not everybody, um, you know, not everybody from rural Louisiana, you know, turns out quite as well as, as, as you have. And, uh, I'm just curious, you know, thinking back on your roots in rural Louisiana, what, you know, how do you think that's shaped your point of view on 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 your career and how it's impacted, um, you know, your career, kind of your your childhood upbringing? Yeah. So so you and I have talked a lot about this uh, over some brown water and fishing uh, excursions. And what what I like to say, the similarity between you and I is we've got the same color mud on our boats. I think I mentioned that. <laughs> and Joanna, that means you've been stomping around the same places as a kid. So for sure, we have that. It counts. I got mud on my feet. Oh yeah. From she's got sand. She's, she's got she's got Except sand. Bring your toes and flip flops. It's not quite <laughs> the same. But yeah, I get it. Like gumbo mud sticking up between your toes. Same idea. Yeah. Like tar. Uh, you know, I would say, uh, Fletch, it wasn't so much Darden. You guys may remember, but I was in engineering school, like Fletch, and then I joined the Navy on submarines, and I'll backtrack on that in a minute, how I got into that. And then I started traveling the world, and that was an eye-opener. I didn't get on a plane until I was 21. No, 20. Yeah. No, little planes, but not a big plane. So I didn't really, it wasn't like I was ignorant. I just hadn't seen much of anything. So that was the first eye-opener to me. And then through a series of, uh, after I got out of the Navy, through a series of jobs, I realized that basically I was good at numbers. <clears throat> I understood numbers, especially those that had symbols that came after the number. And then I wanted to understand about the symbols that came before the number, the dollar signs. And I knew I had to go retool to do that. So that's really what got me to Darden and, you know, out of it. I wasn't trying to leave the deep south per se, but it just got me out in the world. I thought, well, there's just a heck of a lot more to see out here. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can share. I can share. You know, uh, you know that experience because I was, I was close to the same age when I, you know, when I first got on an airplane. And honest to God, I think the furthest I had been from home 
um, when I went to college was, you know, like a high school field trip to Washington, DC, you know, that was, that was about it. So I was, yeah, I had pretty limb. I had blinders on, you know, so to speak, but, um, but, uh, talk a little bit about your decision to go into the Navy, because obviously at that time in the late eighties, the economy was good, you know, presumably with a, you know, with an engineering degree, you had a lot of opportunities. How'd you end up in the, uh, how'd you end up in the nuclear Navy program? So it was really kind of the second half of the eighties. So big recession, right? Yeah. And I picked the one job in engineering school that would guarantee you didn't have a good job. Petroleum engineering. So you remember the seventies, high, high prices, Reagan's going to break that. And then uh, Volcker raises the interest rate, economy crashes, oil went down to like five bucks a barrel. And those numbers in those days would be about a dollar today. So I had opportunities, but not not really great ones. It would have kept me kind of local, which was fine, but it would have been like working for the local gas company. Right, right. You know, that was fine. I grew up in that kind of a town where people worked for the same company forever, but I didn't want to do that. So it was weird how I found out about this. So I'm in the career placement office. I have the grades to interview with like an Exxon. I had a Conoco scholarship and they wouldn't interview me. And I said, WTF. I said, well, you're too expensive. We'll hire a mechanical engineer. And I said, well, you haven't even asked me a price. I'll take anything. But no. (laughs) So... I was walking by uh, in the career placement office and there was a fellow who was in the room and he had, he came in every day. He had a uniform on. You had to see them at Clemson because a good friend of mine went into the same program. Doug, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, same year. And he, and I didn't know, yeah, I knew he was in the Navy. I didn't know he was an officer. I didn't know anything. So I said, you're in here every day. Nobody ever talks to you. What do you do? He's like, so I go in there. He explains this program. I said, so you're going to pay me $1,000 a month tax-free, and you're going to give me a $10,000 signing bonus. So, yeah. Like, yeah, I'll look at that. So then you go through this long program of eight hours of interviews where they just humiliate you and make you feel like an idiot in Washington, D.C., which was the farthest place I'd been. And I came out, thought, they're just going to take my degree away. They're going to go back and say, this guy is a danger to society. He should not even get an engineering degree. They did. And they said, okay, you can join the Navy. And so I'm 20, I guess. Was that the interview for the, for the Navy nuclear program? Right. Right. This is the Navy nuclear program. Did you interview with, with uh, Admiral Rickover or no? No. So I interviewed before that who had relieved him two years before. Right. Rickover was legendary. And so, I mean, it didn't hit me. I go through this interview process. I thought, oh, and they said, well, you know, you're not an idiot. Uh, we're going to make you an offer, whatever they said. And you go to a room and, you're, and you raise your hand. It's like, you're going in, buddy. Like, uh, yeah. So that's how I got into it. And then oh, I Stiltskin, they went away for two years and then came back and said, it's time to go. Yes. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, uh, how do you think the experiences in the Navy, you know, what stuck with you, you know, 35 years later, um, you know, as, as it relates to your, you know, your life now and your, your, you know, point of view on business. So it's interesting because I, I mentioned this to Tom and then I've mentioned it to you guys before, I think, um, so a couple of things. One, you, you work so freaking hard. You're always working. You're never not working. So that, that sort of makes you think about work life. But when I was getting out of officer candidate school, so you go to officer candidate school and then nuclear power school and then nuclear project school and the submarine school. So it's a year and a half of schools. And we're in the auditorium. We're about to get our officer's commission. And there's a huge flag, just like right out of patent. There's a big flag there. And out comes this admiral. He's walking back and forth. He's going to impart some wisdom to us. And he said, boys, you got to ask yourself, do you live to work or work to live? If you're going to work to live, I mean, live to work, you're going to be in the Navy. If you work to live, it's not for you. I said, well, I'll be out in about four or five years, it looks like. (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, you did work really, really hard. You had to love it. It was a great experience. I think everyone should do some sort of service, community service, something. I don't care what it is. It doesn't have to be a military, obviously. 
but <clears throat> you really couldn't have a family or, or really even a life because you work so much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah That's interesting. That yeah. So, so, you know, so if engineering school didn't, you know, teach you to work, uh, the Navy and, and Darden certainly did. So, um, so roll up your sleeves, working hard was certainly, uh, was, was not a foreign concept to you. Um, what, uh, I can't recall, what was your, what was your first job out of, uh, out of Darden? It was international paper. Okay. All right. I remember. Yeah. So, uh, Coming to the Darden, you know, one of the, so first of all, I was like, okay, live to work, work to live. I knew kind of how I wanted to think about a job. And um, in the Navy, there was, you basically got a graduate level engineering degree in about a year. And there was so much information coming at you. And that's where the first time I heard drinking from a fire hose. And you couldn't possibly consume it. You, there's just no way. And I tried and I would study really hard and, you know, kill myself and I'd get a B, a B plus, an A minus, whatever. I was just going to be that. And there were two guys that I worked with that just, one guy came in on a Sunday with his sunglasses on backwards because he's my roommate. He'd been out, he was from Clemson, out all weekend partying. He's like, what are, what's the test on? What are we doing here? And I was like, fuck you. I'm not telling you anything. So he can make so he and I'm the top 10%. So I learned there, you can't possibly consume it all. And so when I got to Darden, everyone's freaking out about how much volume it was. It wasn't like I, I was going to be the smartest guy. And I knew I was going to be no more than a B student. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to consume what I can and get a B. Now, I'm going to try, but I'm, I'm just not going to do it. And so I wasn't as flipped out as a lot of folks were about how much information there was. Yeah, that was, you know, that's a really good, I mean, that's a really good point you bring up because having not been through you went, what you went through in the nuclear Navy, I can say for a fact, I mean, that first semester at Darden was terrifying to me. I mean, I still have PTSD from it. And, uh, but for you, you were just like a, you know, a, a seasoned sailor. You're like, yeah, this is calm water. I can handle this. Well, from the standpoint of volume, but I didn't know obviously anything about business. So I was terrified in that aspect, but yeah. Yeah. You know, they did a pretty good job. I think with the study groups of putting together people from different disciplines. So it was helpful. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So then, you know, answer your question. When I got out of, um, when I was getting close to graduating, I took an entrepreneurship class in the second semester. And I thought, and I was about to get married. I said, you know, I don't know if this is for me, like starting a business at that time. And when I was interviewing, I was interviewing with everybody that we all interview with, like consultants and investment bankers. <clears throat> and I got, so I was interviewing with what was then called Nations Bank. Do you guys remember that? Hugh McCall was rolling. Yeah, yeah. Charlotte, Charlotte. Yeah. And this was an investment banking job in Dallas, Texas. I'd gone through the rounds. It was mine to lose. So it was, this was a six hour, whatever they did, six or eight hours. And all you had to do was not pick your nose. So just answer the question. So I kept asking, like, well, I knew I knew how bad it was. Like, how much do you work? Well, not that much. And they kept saying, well, we just, you know, five days. Well, sometimes on Saturday until about five. No, it's six, you know, eight o'clock the latest. And then we don't go on Sundays. Well, it's after the summertime. So, so I thought, <laughs> you all over again. You just get paid more. So <laughs> I'm at the end with the managing director. And he says, so what do you think? I said, yeah, I want to do it. And I'm all excited. He said, you know, Mark, the feedback is maybe you don't. And I said, yeah, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but passed on it, took a safe job, international paper. But I was also in the process of uh, interviewing a venture capital job in the energy field. And it was taking a long time. It was in D.C. And so I was. I got down the list of 10 and then five and then three. And it just wasn't getting there. So I, I took the six for international paper. Yeah. But that's where I got to see for venture cap on private equity. I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how long were you at, at international paper and then talk about that transition to, to private equity and, and, and how you, you kind of bridged that. Yeah. So I was there two years. It was a training program, a finance training program. And then, um, that got me to New York from Memphis, Tennessee. And then I uh, I didn't go right into private equity then. I worked 
for a small publicly traded company in M&A and corporate finance. Wait, it got so, you international paper transferred you to New York after the training program in Memphis? It was supposed to be a two-year program total, but after a year in Memphis, I got transferred to New York to an executive headquarters where there were 60 support staff and 40 EVPs. It was ridiculous. It was just so ostentatious and over the top. It doesn't exist anymore. I mean, that, those kinds of things are gone. That got me to New York, and then I interviewed with a small publicly traded company that got me into M&A and corporate finance. And so it was kind of cool. Uh, I'd spend half my time on Wall Street putting together decks, pitching Uh-oh. debt and equity, and then my time chasing deals. And so um, towards the end of that, <clears throat> well, we started getting inbound calls from the same venture capital fund that I got close on. They wanted to raise, there were three guys out there at the time, and they were raising a fund, and I knew of them. And two more started calling. So I put together in, internally the last year uh, a private placement memorandum for us to look at and say, look, let's just, let's put in $15 million into their fund. And we'll invest in this thing called co-investment, which I don't know how that. And so the CEO said, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. And he had a little sweat on his forehead. He said, yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, but I didn't know he was about to be taken over in a bear hug by a big French company. And so and there's a whole nother story about that. But uh, because that didn't happen, uh, I started looking and I re- responded. It's about this big. I responded to an advertisement about as well, that big in the New York Times. Like, it was like a little teeny thing. I said they were looking for a junior partner. And um, I basically begged my way into I said, I can do that. I was 35, which is way too old. And uh, that's how I got into it. And that was 1999. Wow. And was it, was that, was that the first time uh, that you guys lived in Connecticut? Is that because you, you guys moved to, I mean, you're in Connecticut now, but you've moved to Connecticut a long time ago. Is that, is that where it was in located? 90, 95, we moved to Connecticut with international paper. So they were in purchase New York. Okay. Okay. We moved out into the country, so to speak. Yeah. 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 Um, was that what was the name of that private equity group you were with? The first one was Hamilton Robinson. They're still around. They're in Stanford, Connecticut. Okay. Uh, perpetually, you know, they're yeah, perpetually small funds. Um, what so. what what kind of what kind of uh, companies were you were you guys buying at at uh, really really traditional that? businesses? So the best thing about Darden or the case study approach is it is ideal for this. It's just ideal. And you read something quickly and you quickly form opinions and not conclusions, but opinions. And then you test those pretty quickly and you, then you throw it away. But nope, nope, nope. It's, it could, I could have had a better training format. In the case yeah. Study. Yeah. The case study. Yeah. Um, you were, you were at Hamilton Robinson for two years. From 99 to 2010. So three funds. Oh, Okay. Okay. Yeah. And was that the family uh, office that you were affiliated with last, or did that came after? That came after that. Family office came after. So I was with Hamilton Robinson for ten years. That's where I really learned, you know, about how to structure deals. The very first deal I ever invested in, we lost every single dollar, as in mm. zero point <laughs> zero return. <laughs> Uh, fortunately, some other ones did well. Now, I was there from 99 to 2010, so 11 years. And then in 2010, I joined okay. the office to 2020. Why? Tell, tell me about the decision you went through at that crossroad deciding, you know, to leave the firm you were with, the private equity group you were with, and go to this family office. Because the family office was a smaller operation or not necessarily? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah. the fund was too. There were three partners. You know, I was one of three partners. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, talk us through that thought process and why you left. Yeah, it was a little frustrating there. So, this is a weird thing. You know, we we're doing well economically, but I was frustrated with the progress or lack of. So, this firm started in 1987. There were lots of big firms that started in 1987 that were small then, and they're gargantuan today. And um, you know, we just weren't. We were struggling to raise money every time. We had fine returns, I guess. I don't even know, uh, but fine enough. But we just weren't going to get 
any bigger. We weren't going to grow as an organization. How big were those funds? Uh, the biggest was like $100 million. So it is, that's perfectly fine if you're two guys and a couple of associates. You can make a nice living forever. But this managing partner, who wasn't a managing partner, he thought he was, he, he just kept hiring people. And so, you know, if everybody owns part of the management company, that hire takes out of your pocket. And so I went round and round with him on that. And, uh, you know, finally came to a head and I just said, okay, well, I'm going to leave it. Now, I'd already been looking. So they were shocked that I had left in the middle of a fund, but I already had something like that. And so that, you know, at a hundred million there, your deal sizes were sort of in the 10 to 20 range-ish. Right. Yep. More on and the that, 10. That is uh, fine. If it was just a couple of us, That'd be fine. Well, you know, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. I think to, when we get uh, when we get Carver and um, and Hunter on uh, individually or or separate uh, or individually or together. Well, but, I think you, individually, I mean, together would be great. Oh actually. yeah, if you could, yeah, that would be that would be interesting. Um, I will have to have a cocktail for that. <laughs> uh, but you know, they they decided you know to. Uh, this part ways and and uh, my understanding was that that was largely uh, driven by uh, divergence on how big the how big a firm they wanted to have and how big a deal sizes they wanted to do. Who wanted the bigger one? Um, uh, Tom wanted Tom wanted to go up up a little bit up market and uh, and Hunter wanted to stay where they were when they did Heron one. Yeah. Yep. So. Huh. Yeah, partnerships are hard. They're they're hard to they're kind of easy to get in, I guess if you if everyone agrees, but they're pretty hard to get out of because there's they can be so economically lucrative to stay in, but at the same time, it's like being married, right? You got to get along with everybody. Yeah, so yeah. It's a it's a it's a weird tension in a good way, what I guess. Was- what was the uh, so talk us tell us tell us a little bit about the uh, the family office that you went to um, next in 2010 and uh, what were you guys doing there and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so so I transitioned from uh, the private equity fund to this family office, and again, the work life balance comes into play. So, and that was Morningside, right? Called Morningside. Morningside, correct. Yeah. So I, I had done well, or we had done well economically. They got a, I got permission from my wife to quit if I wanted to in 2009, just quit, like with no job or no, you know, no new thing. And so that was, that was really kind of interesting I, at, the, at the stress it takes off of you. It's like, I could just, I can do what Doug did. I could just go to Montana. I can do whatever I want. And then it did allow me to start um, networking with this family or in town, and uh, oddly enough, I had heard about this this guy who happens to live in the same town that I live in in the early 2000s, that here's this guy, he's got all this money, and he's right in your town. I was like, nope, I network with everybody. There's nobody in my town. And sure enough, there he was. And I started talking to him, and the best part about the work-life balance was he lived right in town. I could live in town. I could live under a rock. It didn't matter. He said, I don't care where you live, whatever. So it was perfect, uh, and I wasn't as interested in the current income, although I, I'm interested in it, right, as I was in the carry, and I let them know that. So we put together a structure. It was like jump all, like the, the more I hustled, the more economics I got, and if not that if I didn't hustle, but if he found a deal, then he got certain economics. But I had a floor set of economics that were better than what I had, and I had you know, a salary that wasn't as good as what I had, but it would be the same forever, and it's perpetual capital. You never have to raise money again. Oh, so that was the best part about it. I got you. So yeah, so there's the it takes away that fundraising component and to private right. equity. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. And, the, and then in a relative sense, the family had unlimited capital. I mean more than we could deploy in our bucket. We put well, a press you probably yeah. didn't have all the compliance bullshit that is uh zero. Yeah. Yeah. None. Oh my gosh. The, yeah. The, the compliance stuff in funds has just exploded it's in, exploded, in the last, yeah. last 10 years. Crazy. So yeah. I, I'm curious, how was it working with a family's money? 
Well, I would say I normally. Mean, I'm curious, like, like, I'm just curious about even anybody having that much money, right? But yeah, it had to have a different dynamic, right? About did you ever meet the family? Did yeah. you were they part mm-hmm. of the board? I'm curious about. No. You went from one environment where you were getting money from everywhere, and now you've got this one source, this one pool of money. Yeah, so there's risk in that, right? But they too started in 1987, so uh, they've been around a while. And this was this was like Nirvana world I was living in. So I'm working with this guy locally, super smart. He was investing. He could. We didn't even really need the family's money. He had made so much money with the family, but. But the deal was we would put in a certain amount of equity and the family would. The family was AWOL. They, they were uninterested in what we did. Good case. Good. So we invested yeah. $25 million in equity in a deal that I sourced um, like a year later. And we sit down with the family. He's in Boston, this guy. He's uh, Hong Kong Chinese, uh, but lived here forever. And um, we're going through the portfolio and okay. – we get to this page where this company is, and he says, oh, do we own this one? I said, Gerald, you just put $20 million of equity into it. Yeah, <laughs> we own it. He's like, oh, how are we doing? I said, two months in, pretty good. They were uh, – they, they are focused on venture capital, healthcare investing, and real estate. And mm-hmm. the fellow that I work with has, is really um, – he's like macro to micro like I've never seen. Like he can get into the weeds down to – how many bolts you have in a piece of equipment to, you know, what's the interest rate change going to do to this economy? And he put a lot of his own money in. And so they, they obviously really trusted him. And this was just a magic money box to them because we would put in up to 40% of the dollars, the two of us. And so they knew we had way more of our net worth tied up than they did. So that's why they were just uninterested. Mm. I mean, truly uninterested. Like it was nice conversation and, you call for the money and they would send it. But, you know, sometimes we struggle to get the money back to them because, you know, they had lots of different accounts and it was about to close and we would be asking, where do we wire your money? Oh yeah, I should send it here. <laughs> it was, well, it it kind was of, in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways, I bet Mark having that degree of autonomy, um, you know, gave you the the, the training experience that um, you may not have had at a bigger firm where there was much more oversight. You know what I mean? I mean, you were you Correct. were pretty you were pretty self employed. I mean, you know, yeah. from from a you know from a you know for all practical purposes, and um, and and so I'm sure that kind of sets you up nicely for where you are now, which is you know you're you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it for yourself. You know, right? And I would not have been. Um, good at um, investing if this was my first job. Like I didn't know anything. So yes, the first 10 years was super helpful because when you lose money right out of the gate, that is painful, right? You, I mean, talk about a cat of nine tails. You're like beating the hell out of yourself. I felt like I had lost my grandmother's money. It was just so awful, but you learn a lot, right? You learn, you learn about yourself. You learn kind of your weak spots, like what you might overlook, um, what did you overlook in that deal? That, that's funny. I was just talking about this. Um, and it's, and I was, so the person kept asking me this question and I said, cause they were asking me like, well, in hindsight, would you have overlooked it now? And I thought, yeah, I still would. So what, so this was, there are a number of things we did wrong. We colored outside of the lines. We invested in something that wasn't in our space. We uh, invested in a dot-com-ish like business in 2001. Mm. That, that alone could be like bad, but it was, it was infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, it was infrastructure, towers and things like that. But the one thing that really killed us, and there were lots of, there were lots of compounding things that together would have killed us, but the, the, the nail in the coffin was the government was the biggest payor of this service. It was a broadband service. It was a big wireless broadband service before 5G 20 years ago. <clears throat> and it was, it was uh, designated for tier three and four communities, uh, rural-ish communities. And um, the government was your main payer. And the idea was we get towers up, we get the main client on for five years, and then we start hanging commercial stuff off, the fire department, the police department. And so we were making our way. Well, what we didn't know and I, you know, you think about customer concentration, that's the takeaway from this. It's a killer. You just don't know how it's a killer. 
Well, the government just stopped paying. They just literally stopped paying for 465 days. Exactly. And they didn't stop paying because they didn't know it was the money. They stopped paying because they were doing an assessment, a five-year assessment of the program. So everyone put down their pencils and stopped paying. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, 465 days outstanding receivable, Tom, you know how bad that can be. Mm. That's tough. Yeah. And so we ended up having to get Senator Burr from Alabama involved, and they finally paid us. But by that time, the other compounding problems, there was no patch in the ship. It was going down. Yeah. So we yeah. merged it with the sister company, and, you know, they did okay, but we didn't. So obviously, you know, fast forwarding, you know, uh, you know, 20 plus years since that, you know, that grand collapse, um, um, you've made some great investments. You know, you've probably made some investments that didn't quite pan out the way you'd hoped. Um, mm -hmm. Talk us through, you know, what you've learned, you know, from investing in companies like, you know, what are there any, you know, things you've learned from the from the successes and, you know, things you've learned from the failures over, you know, over these years? Yeah. So, I, again, this is all from a board level. So it's not like we were parachuted in to operate the businesses. Right. You know, from a board level and your title is a board of directors, but uh, what I've learned both in the failures and in the successes and the success is more than the failures in a weird way. Uh, you cannot tell anybody to do anything. You, you, it doesn't matter if you own 99% of the stock. If that manager doesn't want to do what you think should be done, he's, gonna, he's not going to do it. And so you're really a board of influencers. you got to convince them why it's in the best interest. And if they're a good manager and owner, they're going to say, what, why is it in the best interest of the corporation? Why is it the best interest of the employees? Well, customers, obviously, right? That's the corporation. So if it's the best interest of the corporation, it's the best interest of the customers. Why is, is it in the best interest of the employees? And why is it in the best interest of the management? And the management team owns usually 15 to 20% of the stock. It's half a dozen people. So one thing I learned is, and I never, I never came across this way anyway, but you, you got to really work at convincing them why this is good for everybody. Mm. And on the failures, um, you know, uh, there's never too many due diligence questions. You could always ask, you know, what about, and you always think of the worst case. The very first thing you did, what I learned from that first deal is, the very first thing is, how do I lose all my money? The second thing is, how do I get my money back? Not do I make a return, get it back. So how do I lose it? How do I get it back? And then everything else after that is forecasting. Here's how I get an 8% return. Here's how I get two times my money. Here's how I get four times my money. How do I lose it? How do I get it back? So uh, those two things I would say have been helpful. And again, the case study method is just spectacular. It's, you know, you don't learn all of that, but you learn, a, you learn a lot of it after 20 years of it for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. So, uh, you know, now that you're, on your own, you know, you're, uh, you're still doing, you know, deals, you're making investments. Mm -hmm. um, do you think, do you think you've gotten better as an investor or do you think just lengthen the game, you get more trips to the plate? Uh, for sure that, right. Um, I mean, your odds just increase just cause you've seen enough disasters and, and, and avoided enough disasters. No, you, you, you miss out on the good ones. I always bring this out because <clears throat> it's, it's fun to point to the ones, and then I'll get back to your question, uh, that you could have done. So this says, uh, the one see this? that got away. <laughs> Under Early armor. armor. Oh. <laughs> so here is their pitch book. And this is one I couldn't even convince my partners to get on a plane for. Like, go look at so in 2001, they did 18 million of revenue and one point, no, 2.2 of EBITDA. So this is a and pitch they, book. This is for, yeah. so this is a podcast. So this is a pitch book for, for Under Armour. Under Armour. <laughs> yeah. And so it's definitely not what we did, right? It's 2003. And um, I was down there. I did a lot of business development. So I was just down there marketing and my, my wife's childhood friend's um, husband who's a lawyer was their lawyer and i visited and i said man this is not what we do but this is incredible because it's basically polypropylene underwear that's what it was <laughs> and what they were doing was the guy named kevin plank who i met who was a ceo they were just replacing a cotton t-shirt with polypropylene 
because guess what it does? It wicks water. And so they were looking for growth capital. Anyway, we, I went down again two years later. It was four million of EBITDA, and they went public, and the rest is history, right? So right, right. You know, that's the one that for sure uh, got away. So you know, in terms of um, you definitely learn more by at bats. You just see enough to say no thanks. And I would say I, I still I still struggle with getting enticed with things like that and the idea of something. But it, it's um, it's not like I'm saying every time I see one, it's like, yeah, I'm going to put my money in. But I'm more likely to try to find a way to make something work like 51% mm. of the time yeah. than not. And you still got to be careful, right? Yeah. You got to do it 51% of the time where you'll never invest the money and you won't raise another fund. Right. But that's right. a constant, constant tension, a constant balance. If See if you can find a way to make it work from a valuation structure and uh, industry standpoint. Yeah. That you know, you, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. You know, you hear often, um, you know, people in your shoes, you know, that are investors, um, you know, debating, you know, the importance of the quality of, of the idea versus the quality of the team. Right. Um, what do you, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I, I have a clear opinion on that depending on the stage. And I can only talk to my stage, which is mature businesses, you know, they're generating cash flow. I would way, way more, uh, or I, I would prefer to bet on a team more than a business hmm. because you can have the greatest business idea in the world. It can really be going great. But if you end up having a management team that can't handle it, it is going into the ground. Hmm. Just a question of it's a nosedive. Is it going to skip off the ground? Is it going to lose a wing? But it's going to go in the ground. First, if you find a spectacular management team, we backed one guy three times. He's just good at business. Like he's good at assessing a situation in his in his lane, in this case manufacturing. And he's good at he's good at motivating people to get stuff done. Yeah. Think, so I in mature business, I'm sure. I think that's the case with pretty much everyone I've discussed. Yeah. You know, this I mean it's always, you know, A team C idea always is is preferred over c team a idea because you know at the end of the day it's just if you're if you're in the entrepreneurial space and you take any idea and you start doing a little bit of due diligence on it there's there's always somebody else doing something that's almost the same and the question is do you stop at that point and and block it out ah, i'm out because somebody else is doing it or do you say yeah they're not that far ahead and this is a good enough idea to push forward um, I, I agree, Tom. The only asterisk I put with a footnote, it just happens to be this 25, 30 year time frame we're in, where's the internet, right? There are a gazillion good ideas. There were way more bad ones, but sometimes you have a good idea. You just got to hang on, you know? Yeah, uh, but, but those are but again, exceptions. That's, that's sort of my, that's been my experience is that you yeah. want, uh, you know, particularly in the internet phases, no matter what idea you have in the internet, if you look around, there's somebody else doing it. Uh, right. And for and sure if, today. Right. And even then, even when, when I was doing our startups in you know, oh, the nineties, yeah. I just didn't, I didn't really know when I, when I did mine that there were three other companies that were doing it and um, you know, but they it was were a bit of a there. road race then, I guess. Right. And yeah, that way. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So. so let me ask you guys this Tom and Doug and uh, Joanna, because that is the question to me, ultimately, what are you betting on? And often we pass on things. It's like, I don't know who I'm backing. What, what team am I backing? If the management's leaving, who am I backing? Great business, but who's going to run it? What do you guys think? Tom, you clearly think it's the team as opposed to the idea. Yes. Joanna, so you go. Joanna. All right, Joanna. I can have a um... – I may be tainted because I've worked in the entertainment industry, right? <laughs> um, How does that taint you? Some, you oh, um, it is the team. Um, but there's some teams that need the idea, right? They're not idea makers, right? They, yeah. they, they're implementers. They're, right. Um, and then... I'm walking a fine line because sometimes you need that person who who generated the idea with the team, right? To be that person to hold it. I, I'm mm. still with the team. 
Um, but sometimes if someone's holding, like, like I'm thinking of term deals in um, entertainment. Mm-hmm. So somebody came with 10, they've, they've decided they're writing 10 scripts for the studio. They may have five in their library, but they still owe the studio five, right? So there may be out of those 10, there may be two that are worthy, right? So who's their team of writers that they're going to bring with them or continue to bring with them, right? So it's like, you got to have an idea generator or somebody that's holding it all together, that's enticing you to bring other good people in. So that's actually perspective because you are definitely in an industry where you can't, you could be the best execution team in the world, but if you have no ideas, then you got nothing to execute on. Yeah, and I've also watched the dumbest people succeed there, right? So it's like, it's the, there's no, there was no correlation sometimes, right? It was the right time, right place with the team, right? With the team that would take you, but you had, you know, you you had some kind of talent, whether you were a former former actor, or whatever that is, but um, not necessarily intellectual capital. Well, on the on the right place, right time, you know, I, I uh, you know, I heard the, you know, once lucky, twice good, right? right. You, yeah. If you can do right. it more than once, then, then you know, stick, sticking with that, sticking with that, um, you know, that that movie analogy or a studio analogy, it's like you, you know, you look at great movies and, you know, movies that stand the test of time and are, you know, uh, are good, you know, for decades, um, you know, oftentimes they have the right actors, you know, I mean, if you have Meryl Street and and Meryl Streep and uh, Tom Hanks and, you know, Spielberg directing it, you know, you're probably going to do okay. But you also, you know, there's some movies that just were the right, um, it was the right story and you got the right people on board and all that. Um, You know, the, um, so I think, you know, to, you know, to, I guess, answer your question, Mark, I, um, I think that, well, obviously the the idea is important. The team's important. Um, one one wrinkle that I'll add to it, um, from my experience, is is timing. Now, timing may not relate as well to a mature business. If you have a mature business that's lasted, you know, decades, it's it's not to say it'll last forever. But you know, let's just say you have a mature business and. Um, you know, obviously having a team that can execute is is probably the most important variable, right? If the industry's not changing, if it can weather all the different economic cycles and high interest rate environments, low interest rate, you know, all the different things, you know, having a good team is, is important. But having, I've never, you know, I've been more in the startup world, um, mm. And, and, and I have been involved in a project or two that ultimately mm-hmm. succeeded. We were just too early and the idea was there. And I think we had the right team, but, uh, but maybe we were a decade too early. And um, when the, the problem that I faced is when you're an early adopter and like you are on the ground floor of a new idea, especially when you're 30 years old, you don't know that it's going to take this idea 10 years to germinate, to become right. like, like, you know, maybe right. scale, scaled and, and widely adopted. Um, and, uh, but, you know, so I think timing is, is an important element to it, but maybe not so much in mature businesses and, um, uh, yeah, so I don't know. Um, well, hey, you know, last thoughts, Mark. Um, yeah. We, uh, you know, going back to our orig- original kind of hypothesis behind this podcast, you know, uh-huh. if we could go back in time and have a beer with our former self, um, you know, sitting from the point of view that you're at today, um, what are the things you would tell yourself when you were, you know, when you were coming out of Darden? Yeah, so you guys have heard me say some version of these things over the past. <clears throat> so, Lucky beats good. You you can be the smartest person in the world, but you got to have luck. And it's a kind of a coin toss, whether it's 51% luck one day or 49%. We sold two businesses in May 2008 that we couldn't have sold two months later. 
And, yeah. and we sold them at the peak and they went right in the dead. So you got to get, you got to get lucky. Uh, hustle beats smarts. You can be the smartest guy in the room, but if you don't hustle, uh, and have a work ethic, people are, are they're going to go to the next guy. I'm an average guy, but I hustled and I knew I had to hustle. So I would say that. And then I would say the last thing is at least in my business, People act in their self-interest. It's it's kind of discouraging, but they do. Uh, and when push comes to shove, they're going to do what's best for them, and sometimes at your expense. And I've just seen that, especially in partnerships, work its way through um, in ways that are that is discouraging when you see people act that way. Right, right. Um, yeah, maybe you know, maybe. Uh you know, Nishka and, um, and some of the uh, darker philosophers from the 1800s were right. After all, you know, we're all, we're all just animals uh, acting on our own, you know, behalf. Uh, Scorpion uh, and the frog. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, what, uh, you know, that, that comment you made about hustle. um, I I remember this was attributed to Tom, uh, Tim Tebow, uh, the football player, uh, now the analyst um, that um, uh, commentary uh, commentator that, um, you know, he had a poster poster up on his, in his locker that always said um, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. You know, and um, and it's been attributed to other people, but he was the first person I heard say that. And, you know, it kind of speaks to that, you know, yeah, and, it's the same thing. And, um, you know, another thing that, you know, that I think Darden, you know, did for us, at, le- at least um, it certainly, um, you know, grounded us in in, in a work ethic. Um, you know, we're not afraid to, to work hard. And especially when you're around so many highly intelligent and successful people, you know, I was I was I was it was obvious to me like the first morning by 801 that I was far from the smartest guy in the room and I better, <laughs> I better be willing to work. Um, but, uh, um, uh, Tom and Joanna, what, uh, do you guys have any final, uh, questions or, or thoughts? Mine's more like, I mean, it's more about your sub life. I mean, I live here in the Puget Sound area near Bangor. So I went to the sub museum. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah. How long, how long did, what was the longest you stayed under? And is it, is it true that all the guys on subs are short? Because you're not short. No, it's not true. Uh, One of the guys on my boat was 6'3", and he was uh, 240 pounds. He was a giant. He, I never saw him not standing like this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because you get to go in these subs and, and you're like i'm five six and you're like you're you're like yeah so you saw one of the old world war ii subs i'll bet the yep. you know where the, i'm at you know here in the Puget exactly area. yep yeah and that's where they they have them all new, over big new so sub. this boat is 33 feet in diameter the one i was on so three mm-hmm. stories tall now it is jammed with equipment it's not like you can put a basketball hoop in there but it's enough to walk around so it I mean, my wife to be, she came down, she wasn't, we were dating and she came down, she couldn't get down the hatch. She got claustrophobic. I had to help her get down. And then when she got in there, she's like sprinkling water out of her forehead. Like I got to get off this thing. <laughs> but uh, you work all the time. There's nothing so, else to do, right? Because you're trapped. No windows. Like you're cruising on the water. And by the way, once the boat goes underwater, it moves. You can't tell if it's even left. You, you, there's no, there's no relative. There's nothing to see to feel. Only when it goes up or down or turns sideways can you tell. Otherwise, I, I could just put shades over my window and say I'm in a submarine. Other yeah. than you have 130 yeah. guys with you, uh, but so you work all the time. So you're working on um, often an 18-hour clock. So the clock is irrelevant. So six hours on duty. So standing watch. Six hours doing your day job, which is maintenance and training. So you had a division of guys and then six hours of sleep. So your clock was 18 hours. So it, it didn't, it didn't matter. Like the time was irrelevant. It's like, yeah, I'm just working. That's why the longest I was you. under That's was three weeks. All those investment bankers wanted you. Uh, well, yeah, you did have to take Rorsch. Ro- 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 how do you say it? 
the uh, Rorschach, Rorschach. Oh, the, oh, the Rorschach test? <laughs> Rorschach test, yeah. You had to take those to make sure you weren't crazy. We we did have one guy that we had to take off the boat in the Philippines. He he was sort of not okay. Uh, we just popped up and dropped him off. So three weeks is the longest. Um, Joanna? Wow, but it's usually like crazy. a week or two. And then yeah. uh, when you go out west from Hawaii, where I was, um, if you go south, that's fun. That's South Pacific. And if you went north, there's a book called Blind Man's Bluff you ought to read. That's fun, too, but in a different way, just like, uh, you know, Cold War stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I regret that we never had this conversation in study group. I know. You know, it, we were too stressed is, out trying to get through the first semester. Right? We it was. Uh, and, and this is why I'm enjoying these podcasts so immensely, because, it, it, again, it's a different way to, to connect with somebody to yeah, actually yeah. gone through something like that. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy. It was uh, it was good. I met lots of good so people out there. Stereotypes. I got a stereotype diminished um, cut out that not just short guys and in subs anymore. Oh yeah. Okay. Good. Because my daughter was asking me that you got to be short. I bet they're all short. Like, no. No. I think David Robinson tapped out. Like he went on to be seven feet, but I think he was in his mid sixes and he was still eligible. It's taller than you would think. Yeah. But I wouldn't, I mean, I had lots of knots on my head and I, I'm only six one. So six yeah. three would be miserable for sure. Yeah. Hey Tom, you got any, uh, you got any, you got any final thoughts? Um, no, no. It was great to talk with you, Mark. And, um, what uh any any thoughts for us uh as we continue to to do this who should we talk to and what kind of things do you think uh would be of interest to explore so first of all i think it's a cool idea no matter what happens and it is going to evolve to where the last one you do is going to be radically different than the first um i think you should talk to everybody if you can but that might be a lifelong project um uh, I might, I might set it up more about what you think it could be in the end, like where you're headed with it. Like, here's why we're doing this. Although if this is an enjoyable hour, who cares where it goes? Right. But if someone, I'm thinking, I feel like you interview people that we haven't seen in a while that are successful, however you measure that. Well, like goalie, like goalie would be a great one to interview. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But she might just say, like, is this, do I have the time for this? Because she, she's running NPR yeah. in uh, and New right. York, and right? You better have our game on because right. she's been with NPR, you know? Right. So I think 95% of us would take this, but it would be interesting to get those kind of people to talk, and they're going to they're gonna want to know at the end. Of. So maybe a little more of, like, here's why we're doing it. It's not just for fun. We actually are going to produce something that's useful in some way, even if it's just useful to us. And then as far as the format, I think the format's good. Like just, I studied a little bit. I listened to Doug. I put down a few thoughts like, eh, what would I talk about? So giving people a little heads up, I thought was a good idea too. Otherwise it's just, it's just like, yeah, we had wine and we talked on Zoom again. It was nice. What'd you talk about? Nothing. Same old stuff. Nothing. Well, I think we did talk about something, and uh, and you gave us a you gave us a lot to to think on. And um, thank you for sharing your 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 life's experiences with yeah. us, and thank thank you for your Great. service. And Great uh, yeah, 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 and thanks also for your service to Darden, you know, as our class agent for many years. 